In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Taylor Outwell about scaling Laravel with serverless on Laravel Vapor. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 120. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wathen, and today it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel. How's it going, dude? Pretty good. How are you? I can't complain, except for uh, a devastating Rocket League defeat that we just suffered. Other than that, things are going pretty well. <laughs> we'll just pretend, go on this podcast and pretend that never happened. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show is uh, we just got back from Laracon, and you kind of finally announced this big kind of secret project you've been working on for the last six or seven months which is laravel vapor so what is kind of your pitch for laravel vapor so laravel vapor is a uh plat- a way to ship out your laravel applications out into production on a serverless platform uh powered by aws so that means it runs on top of aws lambda and it also gives you a nice interface for interacting with some other aspects of aws like databases cache uh, sets up your queues and stuff for you, configures DNS records, certificates, all that good stuff. I think we interact with like 10 to 15 different AWS services. So it takes all the setting up a serverless application um, is actually really, really confusing. And I had to read a lot of documentation. So I just wanted to make the whole experience a lot smoother for Laravel devs. So it's really easy to get started. Cool. So um, for people who don't even know like what serverless even means, like what is serverless and why would you want to deploy your application to some sort of serverless platform? Yeah, so I think serverless means different things to s- different people, but I think the like true serverless um, purists, it, it means basically um, auto-scaling on demand, but also scaling down to zero. So that's a big um, that's a big thing for like real serverless is that when you're not using it, you're generally not paying anything. Um, so AWS Lambda works this way where they charge you in 100 millisecond increments. Um, DynamoDB, which is a serverless database, works this way where if you're not making any reads and writes, you're not paying for anything except your data storage. Um, so that that's uh, a big chunk of it. Then, of course, another part of it is just not worrying about the underlying infrastructure that your application is using. So if your application, you're not worried about, you know, I have four web servers and a load balancer and all of that, and they run Ubuntu and you have to keep them updated. You're not thinking about any of that. And same way on the database side, you're not worrying about manually administering your database server in general. Cool. So as a person who like wrote Vapor and uh, are responsible for like doing all the interactions with Lambda and stuff on behalf of the people that are customers of Vapor. Do you have to even know anything about like underlying technology powering Lambda? Like, do you like what operating system do Lambda functions even run on? Is that something you even have to think about or know? Yeah, we did have to think about that a little bit, mainly because PHP is not a first class language on Lambda, but Lambda offers this thing called custom runtimes where you can sort of bring your own language and you have to compile those against, or every, you have to compile everything you need against Amazon Linux, uh, which is just a flavor of Linux that Amazon provides. And that's sort of the base operating system for your Lambda instances. Um, so when we compiled PHP, for example, we did that in a Docker container that was using the Amazon Linux image so that all of our binaries would be compatible with uh, Lambda when we shipped them up to Lambda. So 
we do know a little bit about it on on our end, um, but in general, the end user would never really think about that. Got it. Makes sense. Okay, so I think what's really cool about Vapor, like maybe the coolest thing about it really, is that until now, there hasn't really been any sort of like PHP serverless deployment story. I know there's some projects out there that some open source stuff, people have been kind of experimenting with it, trying to sort of crack it. Uh, but none of that stuff that I've seen anyways really felt like fully 100% production ready. It was just kind of like people trying to figure it out, you know, trying to trying to like pave the road for this sort of thing. And then Vapor comes out out of nowhere. And all of a sudden we have like production ready serverless deployment for PHP. So what, why didn't we have that before? Like what were some of the things that just hadn't been cracked yet or some of the hard problems? Man, so many things really. So like, there was open source tools for deploying PHP on Lambda, but all of them are built on top of other tools that were kind of more geared for other languages. So like there's an open source project called Bref, which was originally built on top of serverless framework, which is a whole separate product. And Bref was really just a wrapper around serverless framework. And then it was a wrapper around AWS SAM and now back to serverless framework. And some of the pieces that were were missing in all of these tools across all languages was just simple things like, okay, can I manage databases from this tool in a really sane way? Or can I create elastic cache clusters? What about, uh, how do I do my database migrations? How do I set up my queue job so I can just deploy and uh, dispatch jobs and they work um, kind of seamlessly? And it, nothing really told the whole story. Another big chunk was assets. So like there's just no automation there at all. And when you deploy on serverless, you really need to get your assets into like S3 so that you can put either to serve them from S3 directly or put CloudFront in front of them. So with Vapor, we had to build all those pieces. So for example, like when you deploy, we have to extract all your assets out of the public directory. We put them on S3 for you. We set up CloudFront for you so that you have a nice CDN in front of them. We configure the queue mapping so that SQS, when a job comes in there, it invokes your Lambda function. Uh, we let you administer databases and cache straight from the UI or from the command line and get nice like metrics on them and everything. So nothing was really telling the whole story. It was like they were only telling this very narrow story about getting this web layer online where you could kind of sure. serve responses in the HTTP side. But like how do you know, job scheduling was another aspect. So there was all these things that were sort of needed to be fleshed out to really give you like a an equivalent experience to deploying on something like Laravel Forge. So everything else was just kind of like we have some PHP code, we want to run it on Lambda and that's the only problem that they're still trying to really crack and solve and do well. Yeah, and everything else was like, you know, just read the documentation and go into AWS console and try to set it up yourself. So go into AWS, set up the database yourself, set up all the subnet groups, the VPCs, the security groups, so that your Lambda can talk to that database. All that grossness was all still manual and Vapor abstracts all that away and, and makes it all really just easy to use. Nice. So as someone who's like a Vapor customer, um, so me, myself personally, right? Like I haven't actually used Vapor for any of my projects yet, but I also have never used AWS for any of my own projects. So if I was going to use Vapor, do I have to worry like, 
oh, one day I might have to log into the AWS console or maybe there's some things I have to configure before Vapor will work. Like, how friendly is it to people who just, like, have literally never even logged into the AWS console? Are they going to be able to just, like, get started with Vapor and feel, like, pretty confident? Yeah, in general, all you need to provide is your API keys to an Amazon account, which you can generate. Uh, Of course, you have to get those from Amazon. But once you do that and you give those... Uh, to Vapor so we can kind of link to your account, then you really never have to go back into AWS and configure anything. We configure everything uh, from our side uh, using all of our own tooling. So no, once you get going, I've never really had to go into AWS for much of anything, really. Cool. So one of the things um, with this whole serverless stuff that is a, a lot different than what people might be used to working with like a VPS where they kind of have everything installed on the box is that with serverless, everything's meant to be sort of like stateless, right? Like you can't count on ever being able to like put stuff on the file system and still have it be there like a week from now or anything like that. Um, So when you're trying to do stuff like talking to a database or setting up like your cache or all that stuff, obviously none of that stuff is actually happening in Lambda itself. You have to sort of kind of connect and configure these like sort of tertiary AWS services and stuff like that. So what sort of stuff are people going to be using in addition to Lambda on AWS to, to power everything else? And how does that sort of like factor into their like AWS billing and experience and stuff like that in general? Because I know that um, Vapor, very much like Forge, is not meant to be like a complete abstraction in terms of uh, you just pay like your vapor bill and everything else gets handled behind the scenes. It's sort of like bring your own Amazon account. So nothing is like getting marked up or you're not paying like extra for anything. It's like, you're just paying for vapor, the service that manages everything you pay for AWS separately. But for someone like me, who's never used it. I don't even know, like, what am I getting myself into in terms of what other services are going to have to be automatically spun up for my application to even work? Like how many other AWS services am I paying for? How, how are those billed out? Like, are some of them like monthly costs? Some of them are like, you know, built by the hour or whatever. So, so what, what would you like, how would you sort of explain like what people need to understand about that side of things to really know what they're sort of getting themselves into? Yeah. So let's take a basic example of like a database and a cache. Um, so on the database side, you can create just a public database that has a username and password that you can access, you know, even from your local computer. So this would be like something like a database you might make on Heroku, which works basically the same way. Um, at the cheapest, that's going to start is at $15 if you're out of your AWS free tier. So $15 a month. Now, it's important to keep in mind that you can put multiple MySQL databases on that one database instance. So like, it's just the same, like if you had MySQL installed locally, of course you can have a lot of different databases locally, even though you've got, you know, one instance of MySQL installed. Um, So you create that $15 instance. And on the cash side, that's also going to have some minimum monthly costs. And I didn't really want people to have to take on like a $15 a month cost just to have a cash for their application. So what I did on that side is write a DynamoDB driver for Laravel and I actually kind of snuck that into the core of Laravel a few months ago. And what that lets us do is give you a cash option by default of just using DynamoDB as your cash. 
And since that's pay as you go, there's really no monthly cost there to get started. So if you're just using it for something like the scheduler or you're using it for like basic locks or whatever, um, you're not really going to pay anything for that or not very much at all, a few cents maybe. Um, so I think the, you know, the bare minimum to get started on Vapor is just going to mainly be that database piece, which is going to be $15 a month. And if you're using that for just like, say you just have like, a bunch of random ideas that you're messing around with, like random staging projects. I'm just going to put every project on that one database. I'm not going to create a separate database server for each, you know, project I have. So uh, the Lambda side is actually free up until you get over a million hits a month. Um, so definitely if you're just goofing around, you know, you're not going to pay really anything on Lambda until you launch into production. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. So you have like yeah, every single app, of course, needs a database, basically, which is hilariously a problem that it doesn't seem like other serverless platforms seem to consider, <laughs> um, which is why something like Vapor is really exciting. So you got like $15 a month for sort of your base, and that's just like an RDS instance, right? That's like Amazon's managed sort of database server. Yeah, that's just a small MySQL instance, yeah. Okay, and they support like other databases too, right? I know that there's like, they have like Aurora, which can be serverless or could also not be serverless since i i never know like if aurora is the name of the serverless sort of thing or if it's just like amazon's flavor of it's like their own database basically that's meant to be like mysql compatible and i think there's also like a postgres compatible one now too yeah so they have a fork of mysql called aurora which can you can either get in just regular or serverless flavors so if it's just like a regular Aurora database, you pick your your size and RAM up front. If it's serverless, which you can create in the Vapor UI, um, it, you don't pick like any kind of disk size. You don't pick any kind of like RAM amount. You just deploy it and they automatically scale it for you. Got it. So um, someone might look at that and think, okay, $15 a month, that's like the minimum price for like the smallest MySQL box. Um, compared that to like what they might be used to paying like $5 or $10 a month for like their DigitalOcean droplet or something, it can feel like kind of pricier, I guess, to host like your little personal projects. But I think the thing that's interesting is that um, when you're just doing like, you know, your own VPS with your own database on it, you even if even if like Forge sets that up for you or something, you're still sort of like on the hook to like manage that and keep that server running and keep like MySQL updated and stuff like that. Whereas even this like bare minimum RDS instance is like fully managed, right? So that means like it's like automatically doing backups for you and you don't have to ever worry about like the version, you know, being out of date. Like that stuff all just kind of happens. What, what do you kind of get there in terms of like what does it even fully mean for it to be managed? Are there other sort of benefits versus running it yourself and other than just like the point in time recovery backups and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I mean, you have a general assurance that Amazon's gonna keep it running and keep it up. Um, and then also, I think the backup and restore thing is cool because if you, you're working on, say, a little test project and you really wanna like, you know, back up the data and keep a copy of it, you can do that right from the Vapor UI. Like if you're going to do some crazy experiment and you don't want to screw up your whole database, you could just make a quick uh, copy of it and into another database on Vapor and, and do whatever you want. And then if stuff goes wrong, you, you have that fresh copy there. So that's kind of nice just to never really be worrying about, you know, losing your data entirely or getting in some bad state. Uh, so I kind of like that. Yeah. So if you were going to do like kind of the setup that you suggested, if you're just kind of, you got a bunch of like hobby projects that you're kind of hacking up, but you want them to be on the public internet, you don't want to be dropping like, 
you know, 20 bucks a month or 15 bucks a month for a database for every single project. You can just set up one RDS instance and create multiple databases there. What does that look like to actually set up um, in Vapor? Like when you're creating, like, is there like a difference between like a database and like a database server in terms of like the resources and how do you sort of create more databases on one server and sort of connect that up to different sites? Yeah, so we actually have a pull request on Vapor open for that right now. And that's sort of the debate we're having internally is if we have a database server, what do we actually call these other databases inside that server? So, um, right, like in MySQL terminology, they're called databases, but we're trying to figure out in the UI how to position that where it makes sense because we call, you know, databases like the server's databases, but we. So I don't know. That's kind of confusing. And before launch, we'll be ironing that out so you can just create them straight from the UI. We just got to kind of figure out the right terminology there so it makes sense. Yeah. So either way, though, um, when people actually get their hands on this, they'll be able to just say, okay, I need this like new um, RDS instance. And like I want to create five databases on it for my five different Mm -hmm. projects, point each one of those sites at those, and you'll kind of be good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Really easy. Yeah, that's sweet. And then you were saying with like the caching stuff, so you got like DynamoDB, that's kind of mm-hmm. just like in there automatically. Um, what is like the cost on that sort of thing look like? Are, are people gonna like be hit with surprise bills on stuff like that? Like that would be one of my sort of like, that's always been like the hesitation for me with AWS, right? It's like the billing just seems like so, um, so unpredictable in a lot of ways. But at the same time, I'm also pretty sure that it's also still way cheaper than most other things. But historically I've been more comfortable like paying twice the price for something that is a fixed monthly fee just to know that it's always going to be the same. Uh, but with something like this, where it's kind of like based on usage and sort of on demand and stuff like that, like what can people expect for running like this dynamo DB stuff for their caching? So if you're doing any kind of like serious amount of caching, then I think you probably don't want to don't want to use DynamoDB at all, and you would use Redis clusters on Vapor. But with DynamoDB, that's just going to be a matter of kind of you looking at your app and plugging in, you know, your hits into this DynamoDB cost calculator and kind of saying how many reads do I expect, how many writes to expect. And that I agree, that is kind of scary to me as well. Where like I don't really want to have to plug stuff into a calculator like that if I can avoid it. So if it was me, I would probably create a Redis cluster because then you have like a fixed monthly cost that is not going to balloon up if you get a lot of traffic. It's sort of a fixed size. Um, so with that, you know, you're going to be starting again, like around that $15 mark and then going up. But I think, you know, I think actually most Laravel applications are probably like grossly over-provisioned in terms of their infrastructure. Like if you're looking at like a Forge app or something, like for example, Forge itself runs on a four gigabyte web server. And I'm pretty sure the CPU is like usually well under 10% utilization. And that's, you know, a seven figure web app per year. Um, So even Forge itself is over provisioned on like a $20 digital ocean server. Um, So I think most people are not really going to have that issue where they have, um, you know, I think DynamoDB is actually going to be pretty cost effective for people, even if they stay on it, because they're just not getting as much traffic as they would need to really balloon up that cost. Yeah. So most people are like kind of setting things up for almost like a doomsday scenario, right? Like that's kind of like how everyone has their like servers provisioned. Whereas like the kind of the whole idea behind this model is you don't have to stress about that anymore. 
Uh, you don't have to keep this sort of like eight gigabyte server like on deck ready to handle like whatever load shows up because yeah, exactly. instead you've just got Amazon's entire sort of fleet of infrastructure ready to scale up whenever necessary and whenever you're not using it you're just not paying for it yeah i think that's a really good point too where like whenever you provision something on something like forge like a traditional server you literally have to provision for basically the worst possible scenario more or less um which a lot of times is going to be just way too much server power so like with with lambda you know you're just always provisioned at just the right amount at just the right time um, so I, that's one thing I just really like about the whole serverless concept and about vapor is that you're not having to play this whole guessing game of exactly how much capacity do I need on my web layer? How many queue workers do I need so that my queues don't get backed up? And then, you know, maybe there's a really busy morning and things are going slow. And this has literally happened to me on Envoyer where like there was nothing really malicious going on, but it was just like a busy Monday. The Envoyer queues got really clogged up and were under provisioned. Now I have to like, change config files, make a whole code deployment to increase capacity and then bring it back down um, when that kind of clears out. And that's the kind of stuff that I never want to think about again. And to me, that's the real reason that I'm interested in serverless is that I just don't want to think about servers. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest reason resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan uh, so if you're not already using them definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out it really is one of my absolute favorite services that i use on my own projects thanks a ton to cloudinary for sponsoring this episode back to the show so man a bunch of other stuff i want to talk about one thing is um you know, we're talking about sort of this whole benefit of being able to just have servers sort of spin up on demand essentially right um but 
as far as I understand, like that doesn't come like for free. Like the whole reason Amazon's like not charging you is because like they don't even have your code sort of like in memory, like ready to go. So everyone talks about this concept of this like cold boot cost that you get with Lambda where whenever a request comes in and no one's hit the app in a while, um, Amazon has to be like, oh, okay, people are still using this damn thing. Okay, I guess I better kind of load this code up and get it ready to go. So so what what's the whole story there like? first of all like what sort of penalty do you even see and like what can you do within vapor and and as a customer of vapor using it to sort of like mitigate that yeah so there's two sort of two scenarios there so and it's kind of technical but i'll just kind of go into it anyway um there's really two ways your lambda instance your lambda slash vapor application can be running on lambda so it can either be outside of a vpc or inside of a vpc so so what does that even mean first of all yeah so a v think of a vpc as just your own little private network with your own ip addresses like 10.0.0.1 10.0.0.2 blah 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 so it's basically think of it as like this clean address space that amazon's going to use to assign resources or ip addresses out of so when you create an rds database Think of that as just like, let's think of it like a traditional digital ocean server. They're going to assign an IP to, to that. They're going to assign it out of your sort of pool of IP addresses that your network has available. And this network's isolated from the in, out, from the internet. So everything inside of this network, nothing from the outside internet can reach into there and talk to that unless you set up a bunch of other stuff. Okay, so um, if your Lambda is not running in a VPC, so this would be... You deploy your application and you're using a public database that just needs a username and a password to connect to it. Like you chose the public option in Vapor or or in RDS itself. So in this case, you don't need to do any kind of funky security groups or Vapor doesn't need to do any of that. And we can just connect to your database straight away. There's The penalty on that kind of cold boot is, for me personally, I usually see it as like maybe a second, but not much more than that. If you're running inside a VPC, which means you're talking to you need to talk to a private database that the outside internet cannot connect to. So in this example, like a username and password is not enough to connect to this database because it's like isolated inside this walled off network. So in this case, AWS has to put your application inside that network. And when it does that, when it boots up your application, it has to grab a few things. It has to grab like an elastic network identifier, I think is what they call it, so that your Lambda can talk to the outside internet and stuff like that. So the penalty on that is, I think the AWS documentation says it can be from like three all the way up to like 10 seconds or something like that, like a pretty big penalty. Um, so to mitigate that, what we do is what, what's called concurrent warming. And it's a pretty common pattern in the serverless world where before we actually activate your deployment, so before it goes like live to customers, we send out concurrent HTTP requests up to like the number you specify. So let's say we send you want us to send 10 concurrent requests to your application. And what that does is when we send those all at the same time, it forces Amazon to sort of warm up 10 instances, let's say, of your application and sort of have them hot and ready to serve requests. And we already paid that penalty on our end before we even activated the deploy. Um, and so then we'll keep doing that every five minutes. We'll do that that burst of 10 concurrent requests. And that's going to keep them warm the whole time because Amazon doesn't really like spin them down until about 15 minutes of inactivity. So as long as we keep pinging them every 10 minutes like that, um, they're going to stay warm and you're not really going to hit any cold boots. Unless you just have a massive spike in traffic, then of course some some customers are going to hit cold boots. But even when you're not doing any concurrent warming at all, 
Amazon's own stats say that less than 1% of all web requests are going to encounter cold boots. So even if you're not doing any warming, it's not necessarily going to be a massive, huge issue that affects like half your customer base. It's still going to be kind of rare. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, I mean, there has to be some sort of trade off, right? Like if you want to be able to like spin up resources on demand automatically, that seems like a worthwhile cost to be able to accept that. Yeah. Okay. When it's booting up like the next server, essentially, when it decides, oh, uh, we actually don't have enough instances ready to go. Yeah, of Mm -hmm. course, that's going to be like a tiny bit slower than it would be if it was reusing something that already exists. But I could I could I would guess that even if someone hit like one of those cold boots and it was a really slow one and they were waiting for like four seconds and they just hit refresh because they were getting impatient like now they're probably going to hit a different pre-warmed instance anyways to them it probably doesn't even it just looks like some minor blip also like i'm kind of comfortable making trade-offs that i feel like are just sort of um, temporary problems and amazon has already indicated they're like obviously amazon is very aware of this right and they've already indicated that they're working this year in 2019 to really bring down that whole cold boot thing entirely and sort of try to make it a non-issue as much as possible. So for me, the whole cold boot thing kind of just feels like eventually this technology is going to get better and better. Amazon innovates on it actually really quickly. Um, And I think it will become less of an issue really, even within the next six months, probably. Yeah. Has, have you seen improvements there already? Like since you started working on Vapor? Yeah, I think they've already actually made like a 50% improvement just a couple of months ago. Uh, they announced on their blog. So, I mean, there's already been uh, pretty, pretty big improvements and they've been talking about um, the VPC scenario, especially just eliminating that penalty entirely, where if you're using a private database, you don't get all those extra seconds. That's supposed to go away entirely uh, this year. So that'd actually be really nice because then there's no penalty at all for using a private database from your Lambda. Yeah, cool. So you talked about like the concurrent warming stuff. Um, what does that actually look like under the hood? Like, um, is there like some sort of thing that you install into your Laravel app, like some vapor service provider or something that exposes like some little warming secret route or something? Yeah. And so this is actually a really cool thing about vapor, I think, compared to something like Forge, where you install a vapor core uh, package just in your composer file. And that pulls in like a service provider that configures some stuff to get your app ready to run on vapor. Like it makes sure that your Redis configuration is good. It registers a custom queue driver. And then that's another thing we add are these handlers. And like, I know me and you wrote valet together. So vapor is actually very similar to valet under the hood, which is kind of spooky because I love valet. Uh, but we sort of have this opportunity to like put middleware in front of your application to handle different things in different ways, like before your application uh, gets the request. And so I think that opens up a lot of cool doors. It does let us do that whole warming thing where we ping your application every five minutes and the vapor PHP code actually intercepts that before your application mm. gets it. And then we fire off those concurrent requests. So there's but, not even like a route that's exposed. Like if you did like artisan no. route list or whatever, it's not like you're going to see like some underscore underscore warm or some right. stupid. There's fake no route. route. Like that. Yeah, there's no route at all like that. And I think this is really cool even in the future because we can do a lot of the same stuff Valet does where we detect what kind of application you're running. We can serve things differently based on what kind of application you're running, like right there within the Vapor code before your application even gets it. Really similar to like how Valet's driver system works. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, something else I want to talk about kind of related to the cold boot stuff 
was just like performance in general on Lambda because with a traditional setup, like you sort of have some control over that, right? Like you could choose a faster server with more CPU and more RAM if you just want to like speed up like the response time, um, you know, forgetting like whatever your database latency is or whatever. Um, so what is that like on Lambda? Like, do you have any way to control like how powerful your Lambda instances are? And if not, like what is the performance in general seem to look like? Yeah, so you do have control over your Lambda performance, and AWS exposes that as one single configurable value, which is just memory. And what they do for CPU is the more you scale your memory at certain like thresholds, they bump up your CPU power. So I think the lowest memory setting is like 128 megabytes of memory allocated to your Lambda, all the way up to three gigs of memory. And like at certain thresholds, they'll bump up the CPU. So I don't know the exact thresholds, right now but let's just say like when you get to a gig in memory now you get two cpus or when you get to two gigs in memory now you have four cpus or something like that um, and they do that automatically now the whole like performance story on on lambda for php has sort of been like a long history so when we, i first started writing vapor there was no ability to provide a custom runtime to lambda at all so what everyone did that didn't use a first class language was they would use node as their language and then from within node they would like spawn up a php process for every request that came in so picture like node is receiving these requests in kind of an infinite loop just waiting for events when one comes in it actually does like you know node process dot spawn underscore child or whatever the the method is to spawn up a php process and sort of hands it all these requests over the cli that was actually really slow like we paid like a 25 to 30 millisecond penalty on every request just to kind of go through that whole like um that whole shim type of setup mm -hmm. um when amazon announced custom runtimes in like late uh i don't know if it was early this year or late last year uh, what people started doing is compiling PHP for Lambda on Amazon Linux, like I mentioned. And now you can do really interesting things like run PHP right behind FPM using opcache and everything that you would typically use on like a digital ocean server with Nginx. And that brought the, the performance way, uh, or it improved the performance a lot where we went from like, uh, say like 40 milliseconds for a hello world Laravel request down to maybe like five or six milliseconds on the Lambda side for a hello world request. And it took like, you know, I remember me and you were testing this in a browser where we went from like maybe like 140 milliseconds response time in the browser down to like 80s or 90s. Um, so it was actually a really huge breakthrough for performance for PHP on Lambda and, and made it and, and just made the whole thing work a lot better because it all works like a lot more like a typical web server now because you're behind FPM. We're using opcache. Uh, it just all works a lot cleaner. Nice. So um, what sort of setup would you recommend you think for most people who are just like throwing up their first vapor project uh, that isn't like necessarily like some huge high traffic thing already but they're just throwing something up there is like the 128 gig or sorry 128 meg of ram like lambda instance enough or like where would you normally start yeah so this is 
this is another cool thing about vapors. We let you configure your web and queue layer separately. So that's another difference from some other tools. Um, so on my web layer, I think for production vapor, I have that set to one gig and that still feels pretty snappy. So, I mean, I think you could even probably go a little lower than that. And what I like to do is set the queue side a little lower. Like I think I have vapor in production set to like 512 megabytes. It's going to be cheaper. Uh, it's going to be a little slower, but since it's on the queue side, um, it's not really that relevant. And then also you have to remember you're only being built in 100 millisecond increments. So like say, say your queue job was running at 40 milliseconds on average beforehand. And if you drop it down from say a gig of memory to 512, you cut your price in half and maybe it's taking 70 or 80 milliseconds. So you didn't actually, you know, you didn't cross that threshold into another billing tier, if that makes sense. Cause you're mm -hmm. still within the same 100 millisecond window. Um, so that's actually really nice. So that means you were kind of over provisioned and now you can drop down to 512 and probably save a good chunk of money. Um, so I think you can go pretty low on your queue. Um, and then you can go, I think, lower than you might expect, even on your web layer, mainly because the custom runtime improved performance so much on the Lambda side that when back when we were using Node, you needed quite a bit of RAM to actually make it feel snappy. Like you needed maybe like a couple gigs or it just felt kind of sluggish. But now it's much, much better. Nice. So queues are something that we haven't actually even talked about at all. And I think it'd be good to kind of talk about like what the mental model of queues even is in Vapor, because in a regular setup, like on my Forge servers, for example, I just have on the same box, that's like my web box and my database box, just like one DigitalOcean droplet. I have um, like a couple queues maybe running maybe like three queue workers or something. And those are just like processes that are just alive all the time, just like constantly pinging like Redis or where my database or wherever I have, whatever queue driver I'm using just to see, is there a job? Is there a job? Is there a job? And then it sort of runs it. But obviously that doesn't work with Lambda because it's like the stateless thing. You can't just have this thing that's like always running, checking to see if there's jobs. Um, so what are, how do queues even work on Lambda? So, when we when you deploy your application, we set up what Amazon calls an event source mapping, and what it means is um, you can map all kinds of events to trigger your lambda, and one of those is SQS jobs. And so, when an SQS job comes in, your lambda is invoked basically immediately if you have available concurrency, which by default your your maximum concurrency is going to be one thousand concurrent things running at once on lambda. Um, so it's basically going to fire immediately. So it's a, it's a pretty different model in terms of how it works under the hood. But as far as how you write your Laravel application, it's the exact same. Like you would just dispatch jobs and, and they just get handled. Um, but I think, you know, behind the scenes, I know that Amazon is actually doing some pinging for you, of course, because they need to know when a job comes in, but you never really have to have any long running demons or anything like that. And that's actually really nice because when you run those sort of long run PHP processes on like a VPS server, things just like go wrong. Like they just do. Um, sometimes they lock up for like unexplained reasons and you sort of have to restart them. Uh, you know, sometimes they crash and don't come back up. All that kind of just headache goes mm -hmm. away, which is really nice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So would you say like it's an accurate sort of mental model to almost think about the way queues work on Lambda is almost like you're waiting for like a webhook almost? Yeah, basically exactly like that. So it's basically like anytime um, a queue job happens, it's almost like another request is coming into your app with like the payload of that queue job yep. and it's and just spinning up another Lambda 
web instance basically almost just to like sp- spin up the laravel app run through all that code and then like the the lambda dies yeah that's exactly how it works actually it, it comes in the same way as a web request on our side but there's like a little type key or something like that in the JSON payload that Amazon sends us. And it's different for HTTP request or Q jobs slash request, Mm -hmm. but that's really the only difference. Like they come into the application the same way. And then we just marshal those requests a little differently based on if they're HTTP request or Q jobs or CLI commands. Cool. So um, that comes in and the way that this works now, I'm guessing, right, because serverless kind of has this infinite scale thing. That means if you de- say you deployed like 500 jobs at the exact same time, mm-hmm. instead of your workers sort of picking off the jobs and getting through them as fast as they could in Lambda, you would just literally spin up 500 Lambda instances at the same time and just crush every single job at the exact same time. Exactly. Crushing it. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean customers as well. Uh, For example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host Envoyer and Laravel Forge, and Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracast as well. Uh, One of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So you talked a little bit about like the the queue, like concurrency stuff, sort of like specifying how many queue workers like you're willing to have running at the same time. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing like the reason that you have to think about that is because not every part of your stack can support infinite connections at the same time, right? And the thing that comes right. to mind specifically is like your database. Uh, because like MySQL, you know, all these tools, they were kind of like designed for a pre-serverless era where they didn't really have to worry about supporting infinite sort of numbers of connections. So a lot of the time, like, I mean, I don't even know what my connection limit is on in Forge for my, for my stuff. Like, do you know, like off the top of your head, like by default, like what sort of number you would see for that? Less than a hundred. I'm pretty yeah. sure is the default. And that's never been a problem for me, first of all. So that's kind of nice to know. But um, with RDS stuff, like, what what is your connection limit usually like on a database or what's the range so that scales up based on your database for my uh i have an rds large instance for vapor and i think that my limit was in the 600s maybe 650 660 or something like that uh concurrent connections and of course you got i mean php requests are in and out really fast so like you know that you have to have a lot quite a bit of traffic to hit that probably but yeah i mean what you're saying is right that if you're using something like mysql that has a hard-coded connection limit unlike a serverless database like dynamo which has no connection limit then you do need to be mindful of sort of your maximum queue concurrency so that you don't 
if your maximum queue concurrency is a thousand and your maximum database connection limit on a small database is like a hundred connections, you're going to start getting MySQL errors for too many connections or too many clients open. Um, so you kind of need if to be you actually of have more than a hundred yeah, jobs. If you get a thousand jobs at the same at time. Once. Yeah. yeah exactly. So if, it feels like everything would kind of, you'd have to sort of have a perfect storm scenario for, for that to even happen, first of all. But for you personally, when you're configuring this stuff, do you always like keep that in mind? It's like, okay, well, I know like the connection limit on this RDS instance is 500 connections or something. So I should make sure that my queues are maybe like 300 or something because there's also like web requests that could be making database connections that I have to like sort of take into account. Like how do you sort of balance that in your head? Like what's sort of your in- internal kind of calculation process yeah i mean basically that you're like you're going to set it a little bit below your maximum database thing and then also there's different patterns you could do where like you know you don't have to use only mysql or only DynamoDB for your application so like i was talking to some people they have like a really busy endpoint just like one single endpoint of their app that outside customers call a lot and for that like what you could do is receive the request and like throw a record out in DynamoDB that sort of like serializes or encapsulates the request, whatever that was. And then on your queue side, you pull it out of DynamoDB and massage it a little and then create, you know, your real MySQL records. And that's actually a kind of a nice pattern too, because now your web, your web endpoint can get, you know, hit pretty hard and you're not hitting any connection limit because you're just throwing stuff in dynamo and then firing off a job and then letting the job setting a concurrency yeah. limit on your queue layer and now you've kind of got everything under control that makes sense so now your web or your sort of web layer isn't like competing for resources with your queues. exactly yeah especially if you've got a really just like a couple endpoints that are really busy um, i think that's a pretty good way to go yeah that's cool that makes a lot of sense um so other stuff that we haven't really talked about yet um, like scheduling stuff, like cron job stuff. That's another thing that I wouldn't really have the first clue about how that would actually work on Lambda. So what does that look like? Yeah, so it's pretty tricky unless you're kind of fine-tuning. Um, if you have, Unless you have like a fine-tuned platform like Vapor. And I think that's one of the nice things about Vapor is like since I wrote Laravel, I can kind of build this cohesive ecosystem around Laravel that works really well. So what we have to do is set up a CloudWatch rule that, fires every minute just like you know a a one minute cron job would run and when that fires it pings your lambda with the schedule run command and then we run you know we marshal up the framework we call schedule run uh with artisan and blah 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 everything works kind of as normal so to you you just deployed a vapor and everything is already set up you don't actually have like a scheduler configuration you need to set up or anything like that you just start using the scheduler um Yeah, but that's just another kind of piece of the pie that's like, if you don't own the framework, how do you really build that seamlessly? You know what I mean? Because there's no, it's not like there's some standard interface for that across all web frameworks or all applications. So that's really, I think, the killer advantage that something like Vapor has um, is that it's sort of like, you know, Apple with the iPhones and the operating system. Like when you own both ends of the pie, like you can make really nice cohesive integrations. And I think that was the advantage I had with vapor. Yeah, that makes sense. So that's using some Amazon, like Amazon cron thing, right? Probably yeah, like Amazon W four, two nine seven or whatever the service is. <laughs> and is yeah. that something that you end up like having to pay for separately? Like, is that like a, a build based on usage or like some monthly thing or what's that look like? 
No, you don't. You would not really pay for it, um, other than you know, however long your scheduled jobs take to run. But just setting up the scheduler, you don't really have to pay for it. And if your scheduler is running really quickly, of course, if it's running every minute, um, what is that? You know, there's 60 minutes in an hour. Say that's like 43,000 per month, maybe. So that's not even going to register as a cost on Lambda. It's not. That's going to be zero dollars. You know. So got it. Um, so we were talking about SQS a bit too. Something we didn't get into was like the pricing on that. Like that's like another Amazon service, right? So how is like SQS build? I think it's just, it's just price, you know, kind of per, per request. So both putting a job out on there and then getting jobs off. Um, I've on forge, I've ne- I use SQS already for many years, even on Laravel forge, even though it's not on AWS. And I don't think my bill's ever been more than, 11 or 12 dollars um so that's actually a pretty affordable piece and forge is like a, a queue heavy app yeah right? it's all queues everything you do is a queue job basically. Yeah. yeah interesting why do you use sqs on forge and even though it's like hosted as like a vps i mean it was just kind of me wanting that kind of serverless feel you know i didn't want to have to worry about um say i'm using something like mm. beanstalk or redis now i've got to keep that up to date it's another server that I'm probably maintaining that has that software on it. And just, you know, that was just me already wanting to get rid of servers. And way is, back that then, all, is that all HTTP based then the way yeah. that you interact with that? Yeah, entirely. That's just an HTTP API. Cool. Take it. So, I mean, what, what other stuff have we like not talked about in terms of like what people should be aware of when they're, they're using vapor. Like I know, so the I think model what other- is different, right? So is, is there like other, is there other benefits first of all that maybe are not obvious to people? And then are there also like maybe like limitations that you need to be aware of, like edge case things that like wouldn't actually be a problem if you're running on like a regular server, but um, are things you have to keep in mind when you're running in a serverless environment? So I think another one of the really cool features of vapor that sounds like, deceptively simple when you first hear it is the fact that every environment you deploy to vapor gets its own url um, its own vanity url that's like a dot vapor farm dot com type um, url yeah and that's actually a really big deal because if you've ever tried to deploy to lambda before you get a really gnarly url and then on the end they stick this like slash prod slash dev on your url and that just totally screws up things like, like Lara- the laravel and, and symphony yeah because now your urls all start with slash prod yeah it's and like or slash dev or whatever um so to get around that i actually create uh, i assign every environment a vanity domain on my own cloudflare account um which i just buy these domains you know and sort of generate them at random kind of like forge server names with kind of like a heroku style name and that means you get a really nice vanity url with no weird trailing segment on it that screws up your routing uh basically from the get-go and no other like php serverless deployment tools have anything like that um we also manage your dns for you so like when you deploy we automatically put the cname records out there that you need to point traffic to your application we also do some cool stuff around email where like if you're using ses for your email we automatically verify your domain set up the dkim dns records all of that right when you deploy so um, that's a that's a really nice uh piece as well 
As far as like limitations, I feel like when I was building Vapor, the part that might be the most different for people is the way you upload files. And we kind of already mentioned this where like you, you can't rely on the local file system to be permanent. It's because as soon as that container cycles or cools down or you make a fresh deployment, that whole file system, anything you wrote to it, like to some random location is gone entirely. So what we actually have you do is stream your file straight to S3 from your front end. So like from your view or your React or whatever front end, um, you can push them straight to S3. So to make that easier, because there's a few steps you have to go through to do that. So how do you do that securely? Well, you have to ask the Amazon AWS SDK and PHP to give you a pre-signed URL, kind of like signed URLs in Laravel, that gives you permission to put a file out on S3. Um, so we actually ship in the Vapor service provider a little hidden route to do that. So when you call uh, from your front end, you can use our NPM package and call vapor.store. Behind the scenes, that goes out, gets that pre-signed URL, automatically sends the file up to S3, and then calls your callback when it's done uh, with a bunch of useful information like where it's stored, the UUID that we assigned to it, and so on, so that you can ping your back end and say, hey, uh, we received this file successfully. Do whatever you want to do now. Um, so to me, that's sort of the biggest um, change for most people and how they write Laravel applications if they're not used to sending files to S3 already, which I think is a good idea, even if you're using DigitalOcean or Linode. It's sort of a good habit to get into because I don't really like letting user files come on to my web server. It's just there's a lot of gnarly security vulnerabilities around that potentially, and it uses up your web server RAM and all of that. So I think it's just sort of a, a good habit to get into. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I've definitely like built apps that I've built in similar ways where it's just has always felt even just from like a, you know, developer experience perspective, it's always felt cleaner to be able to have like a single endpoint in my app that accepts all file uploads, upload files separately, and then I can submit like a JSON payload for like the rest of the form submission that's like, oh, here's the identifier for the file that like came along with this request. Because there's also that annoying problem where like you have to use like that form, like multi-part stuff to upload files normally. And if you mm-hmm. want to submit like some complex JSON payload, you can't like put a file into JSON and mix that stuff. So it's always nicer if you can just like pass along the identifier anyways, even forgetting like the, just the fact that, yeah, you don't want to have someone upload a JPEG with some weird header that actually is PHP code and can, I think I just saw some vulnerability around that like the other day about, mm-hmm. you know, just like another arbitrary code execution thing. because of some malformed file or whatever. Yeah, you have to be careful with it. But overall, my main goal when I was writing Vapor and I was deploying Vapor with Vapor, sort of once I got far enough along, was I really wanted you to not have to change how you write your application as much as possible. So I wanted you to be able to do Laravel new and write your application without thinking, oh, now I'm writing a serverless Laravel application. I have to think about all these different ways of setting up my application just so it will work on this very unique platform. So I wanted it to be able to, you would write it just like you were going to deploy it on Laravel Forge. And when you push it out to Vapor, everything just works exactly as you would expect it to, basically. Nice. Yeah, so the only other thing that I think could be a limitation for some people as far as i know is like the execution time limit on lambdas Mm -hmm. so what is the limit and like have you heard of real world situations where like people should actually be concerned about running into it um right now the limit is 15 minutes so if you have a queue job that takes longer than 15 minutes uh to execute that 
it will just get killed off at, at 15 minutes. Lambda will just kill it immediately, basically. Um, so I don't personally have any Q jobs that take that long, so it was never really a problem for me. And also, I think it's another one of those situations where hopefully over time, just like the cold boots issue, it gets better. So originally with Lambda, this limit was actually only one minute. And then it raised to five minutes, and now it's up at 15 minutes. And presumably, if that trend continues, you know, we could see it raise even further. Like 30 minutes um, or an hour. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm sure Amazon will take your money if you want to run an hour-long <laughs> queue job on Lambda. Like, I don't know yeah. why they wouldn't. Um, so I think that will get better. So, like, a couple of ways people try to get around that is, like, um, either chunking up your queue job into multiple queue jobs or or whatever. But for me, I just try to avoid queue jobs that even run that long. But yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure you could get into situations where stuff does. But I think, like, when I think about the situations where things might take that long, like let's say like rendering some kind of, or like transcoding some kind of video. Sure. Or like doing something long. Like I think if you go serverless, you kind of have to embrace this whole like service full aspect of it where you should really try to use like Amazon's elastic video encoder service that they have. Or like you, if you're doing image manipulations that take a long time, try to use some cloud-based service that does those like on the fly and caches them. So like, when you go serverless, you kind of find yourself, I think, or you should, trying to utilize like other services when you can so that you're not managing a lot of that infrastructure and, and complexity. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cool, man. Well, I think um, I think that's kind of like all the questions I have. I think the only other thing would be, um, you know, a lot of people see something like Vapor and they think, well, does this like replace Forge? Like, should I still be using Forge for things or should I move everything to Vapor? Um, so how do you kind of like think about it in your head? Like when is forge the right solution for someone? When is vapor the right solution for someone? Um, you know, is it based on just the sort of project that you're working on the size of the project, what your budget is, or is there things that are just like always going to work better just running them like on a VPS instead of in like a serverless environment? Yeah. So I think there's a few situations where something like forge makes sense. So on one side, there's just if even vapor is just cost prohibitive for you at at thirty nine dollars, so that's possible. Um, and then you, I would say it's not even cheaper. like vapor itself, though, right? It's like the 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 price yeah. of the AWS stuff that comes along with it. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. If you don't want to pay like fifteen dollars a month for a project for a database, plus like the Redis costs, plus if you yeah. want it on a private network, that might cost more. And, so there are some apps like they get a whole lot of traffic and very little revenue, and. To me, those kind of apps don't make sense at all on Vapor. Like there was one guy on Twitter that has this like API that serves avatars and he gets like, I don't know, I think it was like 260 million hits a month, which is, it's pretty sizable traffic, but I mean, something like Vapor would easily handle it, but let's say it would cost him like, I don't know, $900 or $1,000 a month and he gives it away for free. This API is totally free. He doesn't charge anyone for it. So, like in that situation, of course, like it's not going to be feasible to run um, this totally serverless infrastructure. You're going to have to stick to like a VPS because, I mean, dollar for dollar, you're going to be able to get more performance out of a fleet of VPS servers for lower cost, in theory, for just the pure servers than you are out of serverless. But that's not factoring in the cost to maintain any of those servers or to like, you know, the human time that's required to keep all that updated, to keep all that under control, yeah. to patch everything. So most people, when they compare like, oh, look, I can run a $20 web server and this would cost me $40 on Amazon. 
that may be true, but now you have to keep that server up to date. Now that server um, might have security vulnerabilities. Now you have to update PHP on that server, like manually, and all this other stuff that people typically aren't factoring into those kinds of calculations. So there's also like the over provisioning cost too, right? Like if you're yeah. just like if you're if if only ten percent of the time you have to deal with like some really high amount of traffic, and you're provisioned for that ten percent the whole time, well. Maybe it, it it does end up being more expensive to run a VPS at that point because with serverless, you're just not even paying for traffic yeah. that's not coming in. Yeah, so I think there are use cases that are going to be more affordable on Forge, but I try to solve, like, I feel like greater than 85% of PHP applications that would typically run on Forge are going to be more effectively managed on a serverless setup to me because I think they're probably over-provisioned on their web layer, if, if I had to guess, um, because I know Forge itself is way over-provisioned and that's a pretty sizable app itself. Um, so I don't know. I just tried to build for the main use case so that people with a typical application could deploy, not have to worry about servers, and generally it's going to work out better for them, really. Nice. Yeah. So... Um I know like Forge itself runs on Forge. Are mm-hmm. you still planning to keep Forge running on Forge? Yeah, well, that actually brings up a pretty interesting use case to where you would want to use Forge. So Forge is a kind of a unique application where we SSH into other applications. In order to do that, a lot of companies like to whitelist our IP addresses. Um, so when I, I run Forge on Lambda, I don't have any IP addresses to give them to whitelist. So that actually causes a lot of problems for actually a, quite a, a decent number of customers, more than you might expect, like to do mm-hmm. this. Um, so Forge is an example of something where I kind of have to keep that running on traditional servers just so I sort of have these hard, you know, static IP addresses that I can give to customers to whitelist so that we can manage their infrastructure for them. So something like that is, is hard to move to a serverless environment, really. Yeah, cool. Cool, man. Well, I think that's it. Um, what do you have any like any other things that like we didn't touch on that you think people should be excited about with Vapor? And where can people learn more about it? And when should they sort of like keep their eyes peeled for it to actually be open for people to start, you know, playing with it? Yeah, so I think that's a pretty good gist of it. If they want to see more, they could watch my Laracon talk, which is uh, for free up on YouTube. If they just type in like Laracon 2019, Taylor Otwell. Um, the landing page is vapor.laravel.com and I'll be going to Amsterdam in about four weeks. And I'm, I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about vapor there because there's actually more, um, that I didn't get to cover during my U S talk. So they can check that out as well. And I'll probably be launching it around the same time. So I would say late August, but on the website, they can get on an email list and I am going to try to get in. Uh, I would like to at least get in, you know, like a hundred or so beta testers, a couple hundred before then, just so I can kind of kick the tires without, uh, you know, flooding myself on launch day with, um, with things. So yeah, check all that out. And if they're interested, they can get on that mailing list and maybe get some early access. Well, there you have it folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Taylor Otwell. If you're interested in the show notes, they're available at fullstackradio.com slash 120. Thanks to DigitalOcean and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week. And we'll see you next time.